Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Blog Talk Radio. Tonight we'll go back in time to seasons past when 22 men graced the rugged fields of yesterday, fighting for one more first down, one more yard gain, one final score that would bring victory after 60 minutes of battle on the gridiron. Tonight we'll explore the world of gridiron greats. Welcome to Gridiron Greats Football History of Memorabilia. We're on the Gridiron Greats Publishing and Broadcasting Network. In conjunction with Swick Enterprises, we're live from the Wallingford, Connecticut home of Gridiron Greats Magazine. And I'm Bob Swick, publisher and editor of Gridiron Greats Magazine, and I'll be your host for the show. Gridiron Greats is the only publication in America that focuses upon the history and memorabilia of the North American football game since its inception in 1869. We cover 140-plus years of football history and memorabilia, and you can find us on the web at gridirongreatsmagazine.com. We're sponsored by MSB Sports Cards. For one of the largest selections of football cards and memorabilia, vintage, on the web. Check out their website at msbsportscards.com. And we're also sponsored by BST Auctions. Check out all their information to register for their upcoming auction at bstauctions.com. Now, tonight we're going to do something slightly different as my regular co-host, Joe Squires, is away for the month of November. I have a special guest co-host, and at the same time being a guest co-host, he's going to be our special guest tonight. And it's at this time I'd like to introduce my guest co-host and special guest, who's a senior contributing writer to Gridiron Greats Magazine, a football memorabilia historian who has an advanced collection of football cards and memorabilia. He hails from Virginia. I'd like to welcome to the show this evening, Mr. Jeff Payne. Jeff, welcome to the show. Wow, thanks, Bob. I really appreciate being on. This is, uh, this is totally awesome. Great, great. I'm, I'm happy for you to be on. And um, you're, you are on our podcast when we were on the uh, Leatherheads Network back in 2013, and now four years have passed, and a lot, a lot of different changes that occurred in your collection, and the stuff you picked up, and we're going to spend the entire show tonight looking at and talking about the world of football cards, your collection, and a lot of generalized information about football cards, memorabilia, and the state of the hobby, and the like. And I'd just like to point out to our audience Jeff has contributed some amazing articles to Gridiron Greats Magazine. And again, if you haven't subscribed to Gridiron Greats Magazine, you really need to, because it is the only publication in North America that does look at many, many vintage football sets, memorability, the history of the game. It's well worth subscribing, keeping it, keeping it as a research tool. And in particular, looking at Jeff's articles uh, which have really, really gone into very, very deep depth on a lot of different subjects. So we're going to start off. Jeff, how'd you get into collecting, and in particular, collecting football cards? Yeah, that's a great question, Bob. Um, and uh, like a lot of collectors, I started as a kid, just like you did. Um, early 70s for me. I think I can trace it back just looking at some of my old cards, which I, I still have, um, to about 72. 
when I got into the hobby, I started with football cards, interestingly enough. I know a lot of kids start with baseball, but um, I was always more interested in football, and I, I started with football, and I collected pretty religiously for about 10 years as a kid, um, mm-hmm. putting together stats, trading, you know, trading doubles with my buddies, and um, you know, just really enjoying uh, putting top sets together in the, in the 70s. Um, buddy and I discovered a card shop. It was almost an hour away, so we, we didn't get there very often, but, but also a couple of flea markets that had dealers that set up. And I guess through that, I was introduced to older cards, which was just amazing mm-hmm. when you're a kid, right? <laughs> I mean, to see exactly. football in the 50s and, and 60s, um, you know, and see players that you read about in books and, and things like that was just um, just just incredible. And um, and so I, I did that for about 10 years. I took a pretty long hiatus from the hobby after that. I don't know if you uh, continued to collect, Bob, or did you take a, a break um, too no, once you got out of your childhood? Not really. I've always uh, collected. I would even, um, you know, in lean times, I would still pick up a few cards here and there, a few packs of cards. And in my case, I discovered shows in the 70s. And mm-hmm. I just thought they were the coolest place to be because there's all sorts of older football cards, so on and so forth, even though my disposable income was limited. Uh, but in my case, I just I just kept collecting and and got a lot more serious about it later in life when I had more when I had more disposable income, which I think is just a classic situation for a lot of collectors because as you obviously have more money, you can buy more things and you can collect more things at the same time. Yeah. So, exactly. So yeah, how, we, how many uh, years did you I take took a big from eight... Go ahead, sorry. No, go ahead. I was just gonna say Mike my break was, was long, almost 25 years. Um, wow. Mainly just because school got in the way and kids and career and all that fun stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But it was kind of funny. I look back and the, the thing I took with me everywhere I went, I, I had um, I went to school in Pennsylvania. I had summer jobs and internships in New York. I went to New Jersey, came down to Virginia. And um, I always took all my clothes. And I always took all my cards wherever I went. They wow. never left my side. I don't know if I was afraid my mom was just going to throw them all away if I left them at home. <laughs> you know, you hear stories about that. <laughs> but I never – That's for I, sure. I always had them. I just wasn't actively adding to my set. I would mm-hmm. pull them out and look at them occasionally. And, you know, I was always a sportsaholic, so I was reading and writing and talking about sports, but um, I wasn't actively collecting for a long time. What was what was the reason why you got back? Was there anything in particular? Was it, you know, a certain incident or or show? Or, how did you get back into it? Well, the first thing was my kids. So okay. I had two boys, and um, they started playing sports, and I started coaching sports, and and of course, they started reading and watching sports on TV. And you know, my my wife always says I'm like the Cliff Clavin Clavin of football. I mean, if if it's an announcer and he's talking about something, I always bring up some trivia about somebody in the past who did something similar, right? And half the time, <laughs> the next thing out of the guy's mouth is, "Dude, did you know that Johnny Unitas in 1958 did whatever?" And she just looks at me like, "That's incredible," but you know. But so yep, I would do that with yep. my kids. I would say, "Hey, you know Johnny Unitas. I have some Johnny Unitas cards," and I would pull them out and I would show them to them, and they would let them hold them gently and mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. talk to them and tell them about you know collecting as a kid and you know just kind of enjoying it. And they they kind of thought it was cool, and uh, they started mm-hmm. collecting. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so they started bugging me about packs, and and um, we started going to flea markets, and then we we discovered a local show and then we discovered a, an old school mm-hmm. card shop where they had like discount boxes and we found an antique mall by my in-laws. And, you know, it just started to snowball where they were getting mm-hmm. into it. And mm-hmm. um, I bought them the Beckett books for Christmas one year. And, you know, I taught them how to grade, I taught them how to, you know, discount off a book. 
you know, by grade. And I was just, you know, just teaching them how to do stuff. Mm-hmm. And they were into mm-hmm. it. So, mm-hmm. you know, we started going to shows. And the problem was is that they got smarter than me because, you know, they were into it. <laughs> you know, and pretty soon they knew all the sets by, you know, just looking at them. And they knew all the rookies and what year they were, and they knew what the rookies' book values were. And quite honestly, I mm-hmm. didn't know any of that stuff anymore, right? Um, mm-hmm. So we would go to shows, and they were still little, probably 8, 9, 10, 11 years old. And, um, you know, they didn't really want Dad walking around with them anymore. They didn't need me to walk around with them anymore. And so, you know, they would go together. i keep one eye on them. It's usually a little local show, so mm-hmm. just one room in a hotel or something. And um, mm-hmm. I had a lot of time in my hands, so I was the chauffeur now, nothing more. And so I would yeah, browse around, I would talk to the dealers, and you know, started getting the impression that the, the hobby had changed a lot, obviously, since the 70s. Um, we talked about grading, talked about modern cards and kind of the explosion of cards, and, and just, yeah, I was just kind of bumming around, and I'd pick up a few things here and there. Um, so my kids started getting me into it, but the real kicker was when the kids showed me what was on eBay. Um, mm-hmm. I knew about eBay, obviously. I'd never really bought or, or sold anything on it, but one day I was mm-hmm. just sitting at home, and they were tooling around on the computer, and, and my oldest one comes in, and he goes, Dad, you got to see what's on eBay. So I go over to eBay, and he's got screen up, and it's got a whole screen full of national checkles. And he knew that I talked about National Chickles. I didn't have any. And I said, mm-hmm. what's this? And he goes, well, these are all the National Chickles you can buy on eBay. And I was like, are you serious? I've never <laughs> seen the National Chickle in my life, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you didn't see those at local card shops in the 70s. You don't see those today at a lot of local card shows. Um, right. And I was like, are you kidding? People are trading and selling cards on eBay? Never crossed my mind that such a thing would exist. And Mm -hmm. so I started tooling around on it, and I was like, holy cow, you can get pretty much everything on eBay. This is awesome. (laughs) And uh, I think at that point I said, you know what? I'm going to start collecting again. The kids are doing it. You know, it's a fun thing for us to do together. I don't know how long they'll do it, right? You never know with kids. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. I got to pull my sets out, see what I'm missing. And, you know, start filling in the holes. And, and maybe I'll start trying to get some of the older stuff. As you mentioned, you know, I'm older now. I've got more disposable income. I can buy the stuff I could never afford as a kid. It's readily available mm-hmm. online. So I just, um, you know, I had to find a, a run of cards I wanted to go after. And I think this was around 2009. And uh, just started back in. Started jumping online, mm-hmm. joining forums, and discovered your magazine, which I absolutely love. And um, just just got back into it with the kids, and it's been you know it's been what eight years now. It's been completely awesome. Greatest greatest decision mm-hmm. I ever made was to get back into the hobby. So really happy. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's a very very interesting story, and and, and to me it's somewhat classic too because I know several collectors who you know brought their sons in. The sons are collecting one area, the father collects the other area. And uh, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a good time together. And, and there's still, in my opinion, some good shows to go to and hit. And even the local shows are interesting to me uh, here in yep. Connecticut. You know, you can, you can still, you know, find stuff every, on, on occasion. But, uh, again, it's, it's a classic story of, of, for a lot of collectors. They take that time off, they rediscover their hobby, and they go back into it. And, I, again, for it was more the mid '80s when you had the baseball card explosion. Even though I stayed with with uh, football, uh, I still saw that. I, I always said to myself, "Football is going to take off at some point, and there's going to mm-hmm. be a lot more cards at the market, and it's not going to be as fun as it used to be." And, and sure enough, it came true between '89 and '92. Until this day, you got you know 25 different sets of, of 2016, 17, whatever. Who collects it is beyond me, and, and you know, it's just the way the hobby is today. It's just, it's just amazing. Now, there's something that you're defined by. I think all collectors are defined by, and in your case, I know it's your run of football cards. So I want to spend some time in depth talking about your run of cards. And first of all, give us a generalized, uh, give our audience a generalized 
list of what you have as far as sets and years, and then we'll go into why you went into that kind of a run to collect. Yeah, so the run is, um, I know it by heart, 15,208 cards. And um, it, it basically is, is every mainstream nationally distributed football card between 1888 and 1988. Um, I wanted wow. to see if I could put together a run of everything that I considered to be kind of, you know, mainstream but nationally distributed, not nothing regional or oddball uh, from the major major set producers, and I wanted to see if I could put together a run of those cards. I didn't actually know whether it was even doable when I started or whether I could ever finish it. But, um, you know, I defined it, and, um, you know, it took me, uh, took me seven years to, to finish it, seven plus mm-hmm. years to finish it. Um, wow. And uh, in terms of sets in that run, so, you know, my thought was, Cut it off when it went crazy after 1988, just like you said. I mean, I still collected mm-hmm. the Tops regular sets. I have all those, as I know you do, through when Tops lost their license for the NFL. That's when I stopped mm-hmm. with Modern too. You know, so I, I did pick up those just so I'd have my my Tops run all the way to the end of Tops. Unfortunately, I hope they get it back someday. Um, mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, I mean, it includes the. Um, you know, the, the first football card, of course, the 1888 uh, Harry Beecher from the Goodwin Champions mm-hmm. M162 set. It includes the uh, 1894 Mayos, uh, the 1926 Spalding Champions football subset in that multi-sport set, the 1933 Thorpe Grange and Rockney from the Sport Kings set, the 1935 Chickle. Now, those are the pre-war ones. In post-war, it's, you know, all Topps cards from 48 through 88, um, you know, Leaf in 48 and 49, Fleer, 60 to 63, Philadelphia, 64 to 67, New Card in 61, Burke Ross in 51, Bowman, 48 to 55, and Fleer Action from, you know, 76 to 88. Probably can tell I've, I sort of know. <laughs> what, what those cards are. Wow. I've said that in my head so many times. You know, that's the run as I defined it. Wow. Wow. That's an amazing, amazing run. And I I'm, think. as anybody um, knows, pre-World War II football cards to me are very scarce. I have started and stopped a lot of those sets over the years. Uh, especially the Chickles, the only one are the Mayos that I continue to try to pursue. And as those people who know me know, I dislike graded cards for a variety of reasons, but that is the only set I'm putting together in SGC grade uh, 20 Mm. to 30. And it's been a pretty long climb to, to find anything there. And again, I see a lot of inconsistencies as far as their grades are concerned because I got a couple of 50s that look like 20s, and I got a couple of 20s that look like 50s. So it's a oh, I it's know. kind of ridiculous. Inter- <laughs> it's kind of kind of interesting to see the, the the wide wide variations on those. And I just don't like those. I don't like the Mayos and the PSA holders. They just don't look good to me. They're very yeah. unattractive. The uh, SGC black um, background, uh, however to describe it, in in the holder really adds a lot of beauty to the uh, to the card, so it looks a lot nicer, in my opinion, than that. For your Mayos, though, I'm pretty sure you're split between PSA and SGC on that, or did you cross no, over everything? No, they are all SGC. Um, well, I have two... Well, I have two and a half Mayo sets, so just to be clear, <laughs> I love the Mayo sets. You got two and a half? Yeah, I do. I have triples of mayos. As I wow, um, it wasn't by design. So when I first started, I was collecting pretty much anything and everything mayo. When I when I got to the mayo set in my run, and I was focusing on mayo, I was I didn't care whether it was SGC, whether it was raw, whether it was PSA, and I did have a combination of all of them um, scattered mm-hmm. around. But then I I got a chance to pick up ten of them from a dealer who was looking to move them, knew I was working mm-hmm. on the mail set. 
and they were they were higher quality than the ones I had because I was just picking up anything I could find, and males are really hard to find in in, in reasonable quality. They were all um, SGC fifties or SGC sixties. I was like, wow, I, I didn't have any that were graded at that level in my set, and I had a complete set, but they were all lower grade. I picked up those ten and said, you know, I ought to try to put the Mayo set together, all SDC 50 or 60, other than, of course, the Dunlop, which you're not getting in a 50 yeah. or a 60. And yeah. so I've been working on that, and as I've been doing that, you know, I've been obviously replacing ones in my master set and, and just mm-hmm. putting in them into the other set, and some of them I've great upgraded a couple times, so that gave me triples, and that's kind of how I ended up with with the number. I I am not done yet. I think I need eight mm-hmm. cards to get the um the entire um set other than the Dunlop to an SGC fifty. But as you mentioned, some mm-hmm. of those cards I look at them and I know that if I tried to cross them or if I had them regraded, they wouldn't be fifties. I mean the, right. the grades right. are all over on that set. It's it's really is it is ridiculous. But hey, what can you do? Yep. Yep. Yeah, and, I, and that's the one thing that, to me, I think is the biggest roadblock for me to, to actually go out and finish the set. Because, again, I, I've seen some 20s and 30s at shows, and mm-hmm. I'm saying to myself, man, these, these look lousy. And, and for me to dump three, 400 on that card in that condition, I, I said I'd rather, you know, get a, a nicer 20 or 30. I'd want to pay a little more money for it and, and you know, yeah, just sure. make it look nicer type mm-hmm. of thing. I don't know if you saw on eBay there was a um, Dunlop that was raw that the dealer was basically selling as a reprint. And to me, it looked, it didn't look good. It looked like a, um, years later, for those who don't know, the Mayo set got reprinted. And a lot of those cards have been scuffed up to make look old and try mm-hmm. to pass off as being, being uh, uh, the original cards. And this, to me, really looked like one of those types of cards. I just I wasn't comfortable with it at all. I didn't I didn't bother seeing what it actually went for. I don't think it sold for a lot of money because I had a feeling it was a reprint one way or the other. And I'm sure the dealer yeah. was selling it. You know, if he was you know you know savvy enough, he would have just sent it to the grading service and just say, "Is this legit? If it's not legit, then I know I got a reprint, and that's it." You know what I mean? So um, yeah, I but, I saw that. There's no way that was legit. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, it's kind of funny because when I first got into the hobby, I couldn't tell the difference, right? And and I always used to ask people. I would say, well, how do you how do you tell? I can't, what what do you look at? And you know, the people that were were good at um, kind of separating the fakes from the the real, they give you some information, but it's kind of you just kind of know it when you see it, right. kind of a thing, right? And you just right, look at it right. and you go, mm, that's not right. It just doesn't. It just doesn't quite look right, and you can't put your finger on it. Is it the sheen? Is it the color? Is it the way it's aged? It's it's a whole bunch of things. Yeah, I, I saw that thing, and I was like, no way is that legit. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Did it close exactly. already? Do you know? I didn't even check whether it closed. It's it. It's interesting. Yeah, it closed. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it did or not. It sold I, for fifty-one dollars. It had eighteen wow. bids on it. So wow. somebody took a chance. And if I'm looking at the bidders, you know, they're all people that uh, should know better. I mean, in terms of yeah. the, I mean, they, they have a lot of feedback. So, um, yeah. yeah, no, I, there's no way that that was real. Well, to, to really Great. share you back, back in 19, it was either 84 or 85. I got to look at my notes. Um, there was an ad in SCD of a uh, dealer that had a bunch of, the mayos for sale, obviously raw, and they were $25 each at the time, which I thought was mm. an astounding price for them. So, again, hey. look, looking back, this is like 32 years ago. So I called the dealer because there was no Internet back then, obviously, and there was no cell phones, so you had to call on a landline. So I called, I called, I called. I finally got a hold of the guy. And he said, well, I only got, I only got two left. And he said, you could have both of them with the shipping for 50. I won't charge you for the, for the uh, shipping. But he says, I need a postal money order. I don't, I don't want to check on it. So I had to go to the post office to get a money order for the $50. I mailed it. The guy was good, good, good with it. He sent me the cards. 
and they were pretty mm-hmm. they were pretty beat up. They were they were nothing great. But I, I said to myself, if I had seen the, the, the ad sooner, I probably would have bought. And I, I did want to buy like four or six of them at the time, figuring that, you know, I put them away and then I'll figure out how many cards are in the set and see if I can ever put it together. But that never yeah. uh, never occurred. And the same thing with mm-hmm. the Beecher card way back when. The Beecher card was not, I, I don't even know what it's going for today. I'm sure it's, it's big bucks. But the Beecher card at one time, you could pick up, Literally for two or three hundred dollars raw, and in relatively nice condition. So it's I find it a, an interesting card. One day, hopefully, I'll pick it up for my collection just to say I had it. But uh, it's uh, it, it, those to me are, are probably two of the biggest keys of your collection. Those set, and then also the uh, Spaldens, which are very very rare, one way or the other. So and then the other. Um, point I want to make about your collection that you're obviously got a greater run than mine, but you finished the 52 large, right? 52 Bowman large. So yes. you have it in mm-hmm. the small and the large, right? Okay. Yes. So that's a tough, yeah, you mentioned the, Bowman. Uh, I going to say, you the, mentioned the, the Spaldings. I, I, I don't think people really understand how hard those are. I mean, a lot of people say oh. of all the sets, you know, in the um, in the run, what was the hardest one to complete? And it's it's not even close. I mean, Spalding is so much harder than Chickle and Mayo. It is right. incredible. Right. I did a um, a population study where I I went out to the pop reports, of course, and those aren't always accurate, but but I at least took a look at how many Spaldings were graded. Football Spaldings were graded, and then I contacted some some people that I know collect you know, pre-war football, who know a lot of the people that are in the hobby collecting pre-war stuff. And I tried to get, put together a population report that included not only graded cards, but ungraded rock cards in that spec mm-hmm. set. And I was only able to find 129 total cards that existed across those 15 sport, you know, um, Spalding cards from 1926. There was no card... Wow with a population over 13 and there were six cards with a population under six that wow. didn't be found wow. at all. And wow. um, yeah, it's, it's just, those are really, really hard to find <laughs> really mm-hmm. hard to find. Mm-hmm. Oh, they are most definitely. I mean, again, until I started going to nationals, I really never saw them at any, any shows that I attended from Massachusetts to New York. And New Jersey. I mean, they're 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 rare, rare, and uh, you know, to complete that set is, is just an incredible accomplishment, in my opinion. Now, I'm going to put you on the spot. What are the six most favorite items, cards that you have in your collection? And mm. for each one, let me know if you remember if you bought it at a show, if you bought it online, bought it at an auction, or you traded for. Wow. Whew. Yeah, you said you were going to ask that question. I wish I had come up with an answer. <laughs> well, I, I do some <laughs> – certainly there's things, some things that stick out. And, you know, we talk about my run, but I love memorabilia too, mostly pre-war memorabilia because mm-hmm. I love the mm-hmm. history of the sport. I mean, one of the things mm-hmm. that sticks out from my childhood was I read a lot. I loved to read. I got that from my dad. He is a voracious mm-hmm. reader. He reads everything on the planet. And he hooked me on mm-hmm. reading at a very young age. And because I was so into sports, I read everything mm-hmm. I could find about sports. I read mm-hmm. every, every sports book in the elementary school library and the middle school library where I went to school. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe some of them twice, just for fun. And so I knew mm-hmm. all these people. I knew Thorpe and Grange and Nagurski mm-hmm. And, you know, I knew about these great games like the sneaker game because I read all the books on them, right, as a kid. Right. And so when I started um, collecting cards, originally I was just going to do my run, and I figured I'd be done with football. I'd have every card I'd ever won, and that would be great. Um, But then I started seeing what was out there for some of these icons from my my youth that I read about. Mm -hmm. And and I was like, oh, my goodness gracious, i got to have something – that Thorpe had. I got to have something that Grange had. I got to have something, you know, with the Kenton Bulldogs or whatever. And so, you know, I did, I did move into memorabilia and I have a lot of memorabilia. My favorite piece in my whole collection by far and away 
is I was able to get a, a, a cabinet, an imperial cabinet of Jim Thorpe. It's got to be 1911, 1912. He's in his, he's in his Carlisle uniform, imperial size. And it's autographed. It's signed by Thorpe. Um, wow. It's very respectfully, James Thorpe, 1912 football captain on the front of it. Wow. And um, wow. it's in a cabinet from, from Hensel Studios, which is a very famous studio in Carlisle that, that you know, photographed a lot of the athletes and other uh, people from the Carlisle School. And, um, and it is by far my favorite item. There's just no question because mm-hmm. I love Thorpe. He's one of my favorite all-time mm-hmm. icons, and um, and I've never seen another one. I've seen the the cabinet, the Imperial cabinet. I've seen a couple of them. There are a few collectors that have them out there, so so there was more than one made, uh, but I've never seen mm-hmm. another one that's signed. Um, wow! And um, you know that's kind of my favorite piece. I got that actually. Um, it came up on eBay of all places. <laughs> Um, wow. And uh, I saw it, and I was like, "Oh wow, that can't be real." <laughs> I was like, "That can't right, be legit." Right. I was, I was and, just gonna say, of course, the, all the red flags go off when you see it on eBay. Oh yeah, like, exactly. So. But I figured, well, it's you know, it's worth. He had a, an astronomical price on it, of course, and I was like, "Well, I'll watch it. I'll see what happens." And of course, nobody bought it. Um, and so I contacted him afterwards. Said, hey, I really love that piece, and I'd really love it. But you know, as you saw, the price you got on it is just not one people are willing to pay. You know, would you consider an offline deal? And we started chatting about it, and I learned a lot about it actually. Um, I, I do like to know the provenance of of the stuff I get. I love provenance right. because it's history, right? right. And so I always right. try to right. ask for the stuff that's unique. Where did it come from? Where'd you get it? What do you know about it? And I write it all down, so I've got it all. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I pass it on to whatever or I sell it or whatever, the, the history of the piece goes with it, which I think is really important um, in our right. hobby. And so this guy had actually bought it. He was in Oklahoma. It's a good sign, right? Um, bought it mm-hmm. at an auction, a local auction in, in Oklahoma. And he wasn't sure it was legit either, but he took a flyer on it because it looked really nice. And he mm-hmm. did talk to the, um, to the person who consigned it to the local auction house. Um, and they had found it in a farmhouse. It was a, it was a relative. They were cleaning out um, his stuff. He was a pack rat. He had a lot of stuff from the early 1900s in the house, apparently, antiques and other things. And in the closet was a suitcase. And in the suitcase was a bunch of clothing. And in the middle of it were some items. There was this framed Thorpe cabinet, and there were some ribbons from um, Teddy Roosevelt presidential campaign and some other wow. kind of things from the teens kind of stuffed mm-hmm. inside of here protected maybe it was in there it could have been in there for a hundred years who knows how long that stuff was in there um right. but um but he had it authenticated i said well i'm not going to buy it from you unless you get it authenticated so he actually got it authenticated by several different authenticators i asked him for multiple and it had to be you know the real the real authenticators not the fake ones and so he actually drove it down to a to um to a to an authenticator JSA and and he took it over to one of the other ones as well. He took it to a couple auction houses too. He took it to Heritage and they tried to wrestle it out of his hands. And um, he said, no, 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 I'm not I'm not giving this to you. Thank goodness. Um, and uh, we were able to strike a deal. It almost fell through several times because he was he was um, very nervous about you know. Mm-hmm about letting this go and making sure he got paid and all that stuff, but we were able to make it work right, and, right. And, I, and I got it. So it was a pretty, wow. pretty happy and relieved when it showed up and wasn't damaged and it was definitely legit. So mm-hmm. um, that was pretty cool. Unbelievable. Uh, so that's my favorite piece. Yeah, that's my favorite. Um, my second favorite is probably an AFL piece that um, I got – through auction i got it through bst you know go bst love mm-hmm. bst um um it's a it's a piece it's called the foolish club you probably saw it a couple years ago or oh, so yeah. okay um yeah, yeah. yeah back in um when the asl started lamar hunt and the other owners all called themselves the foolish club because they were going against mm-hmm. the nfl and so many other leagues had tried to to do that and had not been successful and 
a lot of people thought they were they were very foolish for trying that, and so they called themselves the Foolish Club. When they when they got to be five years old in '65, um, you know they kind of made it. And Namath had signed, and you know things were progressing toward what ultimately would be a merger, the NFL. Lamar Hunt had a composite piece made uh, for each of the owners. All eight owners got one, so there's eight of these that were produced, and um, it's real simple. You know, in the middle of it, it just says the Foolish Club, age five, and there's eight candid photos, one of each team with the name of the team under it, and it's framed. And he gave one of those to each of the eight owners uh, of the AFL. And um, this one came from the Jets. So provenance on that is um, the the son of Sonny Werbling, who owned the Jets at that time, ended up with it when his dad passed. Mm -hmm. Um, He... He said that it had hung in the Jets headquarters for years and years, um, and he um, he ended up with it. Decided that he didn't really want it, and he put it out there, made it available. And um, mm-hmm. you know, our friend Todd Tobias, you know, Mr. AFL, um, saw it and got it, and later decided to move it down the road, and and I ended up with it. What's cool is on the back, it still has the um, the little um, return address sticker for the framing company. In Dallas, Texas, oh, wow. that Lamar Hunt had obviously framed these pieces, and so I had it. I had I had it the the original frame put inside of a a shadow box. I did the same thing with the Thorpe piece, basically to put UV glass on the front of them um, because mm-hmm. I was worried mm-hmm. that you know they would fade over time. But I didn't want to disturb the original frame. But I but I right, had the framer right. cut out a a section in the back so you could still see that label on the back mm-hmm. and you could see that, you know, it came from the original, uh, the original framer. There's only, there's, there's only two of them that I've been able to locate this one and the, the Kansas city chief one, the one Lamar hunt made for himself. I know cause yep. I read an article on it is in the um, Kansas city chiefs hall of fame at Arrowhead mm-hmm. stadium. Mm-hmm. Um, the mm-hmm. rest of them, who knows where they ended up and whether they're still even, you know, out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. That's an amazing piece. That's a beautiful piece. I do remember that from the auction. That was very nice. Yeah, I, I got to put my Dunlop in there. We've already already talked about Mr. Dunlop, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but um, I, I do love that mail card. That would probably be my third third item. Um, my fourth, I would say, is probably I have a 1916 composite of the Canton Bulldogs. You probably remember. Okay. I wrote an article on that team for Gridiron Greats a while back. And um, it's a beautiful piece. It's got images of all the players from that team on it. They won the the Ohio League Championship that year. Um, Ford Mm -hmm. is on it. Um, Gus Welch is on it, who is his teammate at Carlisle and was the quarterback of the Bulldogs. And and all, all sorts of other great players. You know, it's just a phenomenal piece. I've seen that image reprinted hundreds of times mm-hmm. out there, mm-hmm. but this is, you know, an original uh, from mm-hmm. that year. So that's, that's really cool. I like that a lot. Yeah. That's a beautiful piece. And that was a great article too. That was very informative about that, uh, Thanks. about it and about that time too. Yeah. I can never so tell what people more. are going to, re- you know, like and not like, you know, it's hard to tell when you write. Um, mm-hmm. I tend to like stuff that's a little well, bit think, more well, unique and oddball versus the mainstream stuff because there's just not a lot written about that kind of stuff, you know. Exactly, exactly. So we got two more favorite pieces if you if you do have them. Yep. Well, I'm going to throw my um, my complete set of 1950 bread for health football labels in there, um, just yep, because yep. I just absolutely love bread labels, and um, yep. and it is so hard to put that set together. There were some that came up on eBay recently, and they went for quite a bit of money individually. It was kind of fun to watch them. I actually picked up mm-hmm. a couple as upgrades, um, but um, but I love that set. I got it at auction. It, it was the set that the dryers put together uh, back mm-hmm. when uh, mm-hmm. Doug and Chad Dryer were scooping up mm-hmm. every sport and non-sport memorabilia thing on the planet. Um, mm-hmm. They put that set together, and uh, I was fortunate enough to get it get it at auction when it, uh, when, when they decide to sell all their stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be number five. Number six, I would say would probably be my short print red grain shotwell card. 
And this is uh, mm-hmm. a new addition. You probably remember the recent BST auction uh, with mm-hmm. all of Mike Blaisdell stuff in it. Um, mm-hmm. There's a short print. I think you and Joe talked about it of the um, number nine ad back in the Shotwell set. Um, work, work. That there's only two known to exist. Mike had one when he decided to to downsize. He he consigned it, and I was lucky enough to pick it up. I was pretty excited about mm-hmm. that because I've been after that card forever. I have the rest of the Shotwells and um, a lot of other companion pieces. Wells, but I really didn't know if I would ever get that card. That was one of those that you, you might never never see. Exactly. Um, so that would probably exactly. be number six. That's great. Now, with that kind of collection, what are your collecting goals now, if any? <laughs> and what's what's the hottest thing on your want list at this time, if you have one? Oh, I have a want list. Yeah, well, um, I, I've been working on on stuff outside the run you know when i got about i'd say three years into the run i started having trouble finding stuff so i got through all the easy mm-hmm. stuff and everything that was left was either expensive which meant i had to be careful and make sure i got it at a reasonable price or it just never came up and so i actually right. at that point started looking around for you know what else can i pick up in the meantime, while I wait for stuff, because I'm not one of those collectors that wants to wait, you know, months and mm-hmm. months and months, and never pick stuff up. I like to be constantly looking at stuff, constantly trying mm-hmm. to find good things, and and just you know keep engaged with the hobby. So I started working on oddball sets. I'm I'm still working on 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 many of those, um, and um, you know I, I I love the Pottsville Maroons. Um, so I, I do collect memorabilia and, and the possible postcards from the Maroons. So I'm mm-hmm. always after those. Um, mm-hmm. I'm working on a, a run of championship team photos of every NFL championship team the year they won wow. the championship. So mm-hmm. I'm going up to the up to when the AFL and NFL merge. So through 69, um, and I'm working on that. That's really hard because the 20s and 30s are virtually impossible to find mm-hmm. and then get. Um, but I'm making some progress on that. Um, there's some certain players that I go after pretty much everything associated with them. So I love Thorpe, love Grange. I'm a big Benny Friedman fan. I'm going to write an article eventually for you on Benny Friedman, some of his cards, mm-hmm. and just the fact that, I mean, he really was the first pure passer in the NFL, and most people don't even know who right. he is. Uh, he held, he held every NFL passing record for like a decade and a half. He was so yep, yep. far advanced in terms of his passing skills versus everybody else, and nobody hardly knows who he is. And he, it took him forever to get into the Hall of Fame. I think it wasn't until after he passed away that he was in, inducted. Um, right, so I worked right. to, you know, pick up anything to do with those players, cards, memorabilia, anything, um, you know, out there. Um, I've been noodling with trying to put together a bigger run, so try to figure out how, how I could expand the run into um, you know oddball sets and food products and things, mm-hmm. and and create a create a new run that I can go after. But I haven't quite figured out you know, what that's going to be yet. Mm-hmm. That's that's tough because there's so much oddball out there. Um, for me, it was always 48 to 88. Anything oddball 48 to 88, I tried to collect. Unfortunately, a lot of that stuff was just so difficult to find. It's not even funny, and mm, uh, yeah. you know, I lost, I lost, lost a lot of steam on it. Uh, and I got to thank you for. I think it was a couple of years back you gave me that Fairmont Chiefs card. It was the first one I ever had for my collection, and uh, that was a beauty. And uh, and I got to say this: all the shows I've ever been to, with the exception of the Nationals, I never saw one Fairmont Chiefs card anywhere. And those were yeah. those side panels. Uh, on the milk cartons uh, from Fairmark Dairy, and they had the Kansas City Chief players on it. And then they're rare, rare to try to find. I mean, they, they're just not out there. And nobody really knows the full checklist either. That's the other problem. Right, right, um, right, right. You know, there are a few people who, who focus on and collect those, and that's usually where I get most of the ones that I get is when they get doubles or, or whatever because mm-hmm. they're hardcore into it. But, you know, they'll yeah. admit nobody really knows the, the checklist and, and, and what the full checklist is of those. It's right. not really written down anywhere, and the books have it yeah. wrong. 
And um, yep. so, yeah, yep. who, who knows what, you know, what, what, what the checklist for that set looks like. And there's a lot of oddball sets like that. Right. Right. Well, speaking of that, speaking of picking up stuff, what do you prefer auctions, buying online or buying at a show? I think everybody has their own, their own, uh, area that they like buying, like buying from. So what's yours? Yeah. So, uh, I guess I'll answer that a couple different ways. First, first I buy from them all. I'm not choosy. I would say my favorite thing is with uh, is to buy from um, private people, so other mm-hmm, collectors. Mm-hmm. Um, I mm-hmm. love doing deals with other collectors. Um, I don't sell a lot of stuff because I'm, you know, I, I kind of like my stuff, so I don't really sell. More of a hoarder mm-hmm. than a collector mm-hmm. at this point. But when I do, mm-hmm. it's always to another collector. It's somebody mm-hmm. who I know wants something or needs something, and I have two. And I'm like, why do I need two? <laughs> you know, this person yeah. wants this, yeah. and, you know, let me pass it along and help another collector. But I love yeah. doing private yeah. deals. Um, I don't know if Joe told you, but Joe and I did a trade recently, Squires. Yep. And, yep. you know, that's the first trade I've done since I was a kid. And it was so much fun um, yep. that, that I definitely want to do more. It's just really hard to find people, right, that, I mean, when you collect this stuff that, that have something you need and you have something they need, it's, it can be tricky. Exactly. Um, exactly. But that was really fun. Really enjoyed doing that with Joe, and I'd love to do more trades. I like the auctions. The only ones I don't like are the ones that end in the middle of the night. That drives me crazy. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I've told the auction houses, I, I just can't, I can't, I can't do it anymore. I, I refuse to right. stay up now. And I am so glad that, you know, BST and Love of the Game and, and you know, a bunch of other auction houses are, are starting to change their, you know, their approach. And I, yeah, I there, hope there that carries over. There has to be some normalcy with that. That's kind of ridiculous. I mean, really, it's unbelievable. You know, people got to stay up 24 hours straight just to watch their auctions. I mean, it's it's, it's crazy. doesn't make any sense to me. No, it, it is crazy. And I, I, fun, I truly believe there's no evidence that that matters. I really – I know mm-hmm. the consigners, some of them believe it. I, I, I've mm-hmm. looked far and wide. I've looked for, you know, papers that talk about auction formats and just for any, you know, evidence or information of people that have done studies on auctions – and what works and what doesn't and whatever. And the reality is I can't find any data that says keeping it open all night is better than right. you know, just right. making it a hard close and making, forcing people to bid what they want to bid for it. And um, exactly. I always tell the auction houses because they always say, you know, do you like you know, lots of lots? Do you like hard close? Do you like you know, rolling? Do you like you know, one at a time? Mm-hmm. I, I say, you know what? Mm-hmm. I don't care. Everyone, you're going to have a different strategy for because each one you got to approach a little differently. But as long as it, I'm awake when it closes, that's all I care about. You just tell me what the rules right. are, and I'll figure out how I want to yep. bid. But i got to be awake. Yep. You know, that's the key. I agree. Well, you know, when we were at the uh, National this past year, we talked very briefly about this. And just give our audience a few ideas of your thoughts and impressions of a national, like the national show, Versus a local large show, for example, you're close to the Chantilly show down there in Virginia. What what do you see as the difference, or what are your thoughts or impressions between the two types of shows? Well, we're lucky here in Virginia because the Chantilly show is really good. In fact, I'm I'm guessing that it's probably the biggest regional show in the country at this point. I mean, every show I hear about when I ask about the number of tables and what what not, they don't come close to Chantilly. So Unless somebody can point me to something bigger, it's the second biggest show in the country, and they have it three times a year. I I definitely get more items at Chantilly than I ever do at the National. I go to the National every year. I love going to the National, but I get more stuff at at Chantilly than I ever do at the National. Um, Mm -hmm. I like the National more for the relationships and, you know, catching up with people, and it's become kind of a – you know, a community, right? And I think that's why right. a lot of people go to the national. I think the online auctions yeah. have completely destroyed, you know, the the need to go to card shows to get stuff because the reality well, is also, I don't see that much at the national that I don't see online, right? And it right. used to be what I hear from old-time collectors is, 
you went to the national to see the things you could never see anywhere else. And I don't exactly. think that's true exactly. anymore. And I think that hurts. It hurts the shows. Exactly. You know, you got up here in uh, outside of Boston, you got the Shriner show a couple times here. It's not called the Shriner show, mm-hmm. whatever it's called today, which is a relatively large show. You could actually see some different things, especially if you want New England sport type of uh, items, you know, uh, oddball Red Sox stuff, oddball Patriots stuff, so on and so forth. And I think the online auction, to a large degree, has really killed a lot of the camaraderie in the hobby where you used to have at shows, and I know here locally, I, I did local shows for years here. I mean, you knew everybody, and you knew a lot of collectors, and you knew a lot of dealers, and you knew the dealers that came out of New York and New Jersey a couple times a year to set up at the show. So there was a lot more camaraderie than what you have today. And the national, to me, is like is like the, the, the dying embers of trying to keep people's relationships together in the hobby, you know, so they could see somebody talk, you know, and just talk one-on-one type of stuff, you know. And that's, that's the big well, yeah. way I go, you know. Yeah, because exactly. It, and it's here's a lot a different talking example. in person than talking on the phone, so. Yeah, perfect example. When my kids started, there were four go-to places we had. There was a local card shop that I mentioned. There was an antique mall mm-hmm. by my, my in-laws. There was a local card show right in Tyson's Corner here. And there was a car dealer at a flea market that had a lot of great stuff you could pick through. All four of those mm-hmm. no longer exist, and that was less than 10 years ago. They're all gone. Wow. All wow. the lo- well, little that's... ones are gone. Um, all the and card that's... shops that's... that do the old stuff are gone, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's almost like if you, if, you, if, you don't, if you can't sustain or create a big show, all the little stuff is going away, and it makes you wonder how long – the regional shows are going to last, and then what's going to be up with the nationals? Right, right. Well, I, I use the story. It was about must have been about five, six years ago. Uh, a fellow took over one of the local shows here, and you know he needed he needed people to take tables. So I took two tables, and mm-hmm. I vaguely remember it was like fifty or sixty dollars for the table. I brought a lot of stuff, a lot of mix of cards, publications, pennants, you name it. I had a good mix of stuff. Well, I didn't even make my table fee that day with what I had. Jeez. And I was just shocked to see how few people actually went to the show. And, and I, yeah. I was floored. And, sure. and, and the promoter said, you know, I got ads every which way. I got a, you know, I'm in Beckett, I'm in SCD, I'm in the local papers. You know, we hand out hundreds of flyers, and this is what you get. You know, and, and that, that scared me when I saw that. I, I, really, I really said to myself, you know, this is not a good sign for the hobby if this is what's going to happen. So that, that leads me no. to my next question, that where do you see our hobby over the next, you know, let's say two to ten years? Are there any – what changes do you think, if any, are going to occur? Or in, in, you know, what's your feeling on it? Yeah, so um, I'm still bullish on football. I think football, I agree with you. I still think it's undervalued. It's such a popular sport. Now it's got its mm-hmm. challenges, right, with the concussion issues, and and um, nobody knows what that's going to do to the game. You've got a different demographic that doesn't watch TV as much anymore. You know, what's that right, going to do right. to the game? Um, football was built for TV. It's the perfect sport for TV. Is it the perfect sport for your phone? I don't know. And and how does that yeah. translate into how many people will collect and how many people care about football and all that stuff? I just think if you look at football – and professional football as an organized league is 50 years younger than professional baseball, almost exactly, right? Baseball right. started right around 1870, its first league, yeah. formal league. Um, and so we're behind. I mean, we're 50 years behind baseball. And I always look at it mm-hmm. simply as, okay, so where were baseball cards 50 years ago? Now, of course, mm-hmm. things have changed, so that's not a perfect comparison. But I think people forget how – new football really is as compared to baseball. Now, the other challenge, of course, is that the NFL doesn't seem to care about its past. And so it's up to you and me and and others to Mm -hmm. get information out there about the past because as far as I can tell, if it it didn't happen after Super Bowl I, they don't really care that it ever happened. Um, But I think football is still undervalued. I think collectors are going to continue to flock to football even perhaps because baseball is getting too expensive. Um, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I think a lot of people that grew up watching football are getting to the age where they have that 
discretionary income to get back to their childhood. And they'll start with their childhood cards. But as you as you and I know, that's a gateway drug to older cards, right? right? You, you start with your childhood stuff, and then you start seeing about the people, like I did, the, the, the great names from the past that you read about as a kid, and you start being interested in the older stuff. So I'm pretty right. bullish on it. Right. I think the kids are – they are, are continuing to go into the hobby um, maybe not as many as before, but I, I think there's a there's a long time before the hobby, you know, doesn't see you know growth in in prices. Mm-hmm. Um, I think from a football perspective. Okay. All right, we're down to four minutes, and I got a couple more things I want to ask you real quick. Any advice for somebody getting into collecting football cards and football memorabilia? Yeah, so I mean, obviously, you start with what you love and whatever. I would say that the thing that I did wrong when I started was. And, and somebody told me this, and I didn't really listen, which was focus on the level of quality that you want. You know, as a kid, right. I got – it didn't matter. I just wanted the card. It didn't matter if it went right. through the washing machine. And I've got cards that clearly went through the washing machine. I must have traded for them because mm-hmm. I didn't put any of mine through the washing machine. But these cards have been through the washing machine. Um, yep. and, and and I just took it because I needed it, right? Um what you find out as you get into it is you start getting pickier sometimes and you start deciding you don't like certain things. Maybe you don't like creases mm-hmm. or you don't like rounded corners or you don't like writing on the back or you don't like whatever, which at first you're okay with, but then you're not right. I mean, I, I kind of mm-hmm. liken it to drinking wine. You know, when I first started drinking wine, yeah, any $5 bottle at the local supermarket tasted fine. Right. And then I mm-hmm. started learning a little bit about it and I, I started reading the ratings and I got some wines that I kind of liked. I was like, yeah, these are pretty good. And then when I tasted that other stuff, I was like, oh my gosh, this is horrible. Right. The stuff I used to love. <laughs> so your, your tastes kind of change. And I think that happens with your cards. And so as I went through my run, I started getting pickier. I'm not a high grade collector. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a graded person. I don't grade, get cards mm-hmm. graded unless they come graded. Mm-hmm. But my tastes mm-hmm. were getting pickier. And, and what that mm-hmm. means is part of my run, my older sets, they're not at the level of quality that I wish they were. And now I'm going back and mm-hmm. I'm upgrading them because I want all my cards to you – know, when I look at them, I want to enjoy them. And if I don't like the fact that it's a crease, i got to replace it. So mm-hmm. I always tell people, even if it means holding out a little longer, figure out what grade you really like. And what you know, what you want the card to look like? Eye appeal, and go for that eye appeal, and wait out for that eye appeal, because otherwise you'll buy something yeah. and then you'll just end up wanting to replace it, right? Yeah. So I mean, I that agree. would be my advice for people getting into it. I agree with that because I look, I always refer back to my forty-eight and forty-nine leaf sets, which are mm-hmm. some of those cards on the in that set uh, are the beaters beyond beaters. And um, well, you and a lot I can of them are the, with each other because mine are exactly the same way. <laughs> <laughs> they the, are. Uh, They're not I in mean, good shape. The high, the high number forty-eights are just nightmares. Mm. But you know what? I put that set together quite a while ago, and it, it, it holds a lot of memories for me. When I put it, put them together, um, we're going to have on our next show, which you're going to be on as my co-host. I mean, I got a very good collecting story with that guest on that 48 loose mm. set. So I'm going to save it for that night, but I do agree with you. That's something I never really thought about in my collecting uh, days, my early collecting days. If I found something, if I found something, I would just uh, collect it and that's it. Well, we're almost out of time, Jeff. I truly appreciate you being on the show as a one and all co-host and guest. You got an incredible collection and uh, I truly appreciate you being on. You're going to be back on our next show, which is going to be coming up next week. And uh, we're going to be interviewing Super Collector Mike Rich. Jeff will be my guest co-host for that show. Jeff, I appreciate you being on tonight. And I just want to remind everybody, we're sponsored by MSB Sports Cards. Check out their website at msbsportscards.com. And we're also sponsored by BST Auctions. Check out their website and register for their auctions, bstauctions.com. All right, Jeff, we've got 20 seconds. Final thoughts of anything? Uh, just it was an honor, Bob. This was so much fun. And you do so much for the hobby. I don't think people realize how important what you do is. And I certainly appreciate it and applaud you and thank you for, for doing the podcast and, and also doing the magazine. It's, it's wonderful stuff. So thank you. Well, I, 
And I thank you for your contributions to the magazine and to the podcast because that, that's what I need. That's what I that, to hear from collectors and, and writing from a collecting perspective. That's what our hobby is all about, and that's what sometimes is lost lost in in translation. All right, we're out of time. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week for another show. Take care. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Do you wish you knew more about the 100 seasons of the NFL? You're in luck because you found the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. From the founding of the league in an auto showroom, all the way to what it is today, America's favorite sport and a behemoth of an industry. My name is Ernie Chapman. Football is my passion, and I want you to come along with me each week to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board, my DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.